CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview. Oh, there's the brown line. Is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Thursday, March 26, 2020. And the Chicago Sun-Times, the headline in the Sun-Times. So if you're listening to this 10 years from now, you'll know what's going on in the world. You call this social distancing? We're in the midst of the coronavirus a pandemic. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot had ordered everybody uh, to uh, stay at their homes as much as possible, not get out and mingle. Yesterday was a gorgeous day in the city of Chicago. So what did Chicagoans do? They raced to the lakefront. And there's a picture in the Sun-Times <laughs> Everybody flunking the social distancing requirement by just walking down the path cluelessly. My beloved Chicagoans, you blew it. And as a result, Lori Lightfoot has now uh, banned, the closed the parks. The parks are locked down in the city of Chicago. So nice going, Chicago. Hope you feel really guilty. No, I'm just sort of kidding. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move on to our interview. And as I always do, I ask our distinguished guests to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest. Introduce yourself. Hey, Ben. Hey, Dennis. This is Neil Mohammed. Thank you for having me back. Um, I'm a former congressional candidate in Illinois' 16th U.S. House District, which was um, kind of how we first got acquainted. Um, besides running up in that election, I was also runner-up on Jeopardy uh, a couple of years ago. Um, currently work in the healthcare field. I, I do sort of administrative or um, uh, sort of leadership consulting for hospitals all across the country. And as of a couple of weeks ago, I am the Democratic nominee for a seat on DeKalb County's board in District 9. Uh, congratulations on that one, Neil. I actually, before the show, I had looked, it was about a week ago, I looked to see if you had won and there was no mention of it. And then I was talking to Neil before the show, he was running unopposed. And a rule of thumb, you don't have to be a Jeopardy candidate to know this, uh, uh, is that it's really hard to lose an election if you have no opponent. Uh, and Neil Muhammad po uh, uh, proved that in this last election. So congratulations, Neil. I know you're going to be a hell of a uh, candidate. And uh, at the moment, you don't have a Republican opponent either. Isn't that correct? I do not. And fingers crossed on that, because this is the uh, most Democratic area in the entire county. So uh, you know, uh, hoping for a, a smooth election process, at least smoother than it was two years ago for that other race. But I guess we'll see. Well, I'm just going to give my opinion, and this is Ben Jarofsky's personal opinion. Uh, DeKalb County, you're very lucky to have Neil Muhammad on your county board. He's truly one of the smart people uh, in politics uh, that uh, I've had oh, the fortune of you. interviewing. And uh, yeah, this will probably be your fifth appearance on this show, if I got it right. 
Uh, and it's become a very, it's a very popular feature. Neil Muhammad comes in, we talk about what's going on in the world. And obviously what's going on in the world is um, the coronavirus epidemic. We've been talking about it all week. We're doing the show, Neil, from my attic. We have been doing the show from my attic <laughs> for over a week. And uh, as Dennis uh, alluded to earlier, the uh, Brown Line train goes right by my house. So from time to time, you'll hear the rumbling of a train. And every now and then, the Metra train uh, goes by. That Those tracks are just on the other side of a factory from the Brown Line tracks. So you're going to hear all kinds of trains going by. Life is still continuing uh, in the face of this pandemic. Uh, all right. Well, that's also how we know you're a real Chicago when you haven't been playing it, playing at it all these years. Yes, I've, I've been living in this. I've lived in this house since 1985. All right, Neil. Let's talk about. Um, there's so many aspects uh, to go over uh, when it comes to uh, the pandemic. Let's start at the top. How has President Donald John Trump, in your humble opinion, uh, handled this crisis? Not great is the short answer. Um, Something I was, I mean, even before we got on the line earlier to get ready to do this, something I've been thinking about is there are plenty of incidents in history where you kind of ask yourself, you know, why did things happen that badly? So for some reason, the first one that came to mind is, you know, the story about beginning of the Civil War, the Union puts the army together, they put it under George McClellan, and he just kind of sits there in Northern Virginia and doesn't attack the Confederacy for a full year. Um, And you ask, you know, clearly someone should have done something. Everyone knew it was a, you know, in that, in that case, uh, the um, Confederacy was a problem at the time. So why didn't somebody do something about it? And I never really thought we'd live through that cut and dry an issue in our own lifetimes like we currently are, where this was a known issue. This has been hap- happening in slow, at least initially in slow motion for months. Um, we have a president who both before and immediately after that crisis came to light, at least at, the, at that level, chose not only not to do anything, but he actually had um, made things worse off for us all by failing to prepare for this a couple of years ago. And now here we are. And it's also very hard to think about if he hasn't risen to this challenge yet, what can we as voters possibly do to make him do something going forward. I, I find myself kind of coming up, coming up empty on that note. Yeah, that is, that last point is an excellent one. Uh, how we as a vote, uh, as wh- how, what we can we do as voters to force Donald Trump to do the right thing? Uh, and I don't see a way out with the electoral college system we have, which is a conversation for another time. But when he has the electoral college, when he has the electoral map, Neil, sewed up, so I, I don't have the exact numbers, but like he's very close to winning re-election uh, by mm-hmm. being racist, inept, uh, anti-science, uh, vindictive, thin-skinned, go down the list of all the things that Donald Trump is, and it doesn't matter. When his beha- there is no accountability for his behavior because he's got what two thirds at least of the votes he needs to just be reelected, it's virtually right. impossible to hold him accountable. Well, I would go I would go deeper than that actually, which is that you know 
you're absolutely right in everything you just said. And something that unfortunately we've learned over the first three years of this administration is that we knew plenty of our fellow citizens who were racist. Turns out maybe more of them were than we realized. Same is true for sexism. Same is true for, you know, on and on down the line. But at its core, and I mean, I think I mentioned this on previous episodes, another side gig I used to have before I ended up in healthcare where I am now, or being a politician for that matter, was having once upon a time been a professor of political science, which is what my doctorate's in. And when we teach political science to college students, one thing you kind of start out with is this idea that fundamentally, and this should be a no-duh point, but it's not, at least in the United States right now, fundamentally what makes democracy work or what the whole sort of point of the exercise is supposed to be is that democratically elected leaders, once they're in office, have to pay some sort of attention to the, to the public good. They can't just ransack the office for their own ends. They can't just, um, you know, uh, give spoils or rewards or additional support to their supporters. You know, they are the president of all the people or the prime minister or, or whatever. Um, there's some sense that the reason you want to live in a democracy is that de democratic leaders have a responsibility for the national well-being and therefore will sort of act in that way, right? They will do right by the country on some level. And that's not true right now in this country. Like that, it's not just this jerk, I hope, doesn't get reelected, even though he, he totally possibly could. I agree with your assessment, Ben. Um, but on sort of a more basic conceptual level, I feel like we're watching our government just sort of disintegrate. And I don't know where, you know, at some point, what legitimacy do we keep reading into this government given that's done nothing to earn that legitimacy? Yeah, well, that point uh, may have passed with this uh, pandemic. Uh, let's get into the specifics about what Donald Trump has done and what might have been different. Uh, I know this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but in your opinion, sure. what should a competent president have done uh, from the moment that he or she got reports of the epidemic breaking out in China? I think it's a couple of things. One, and this goes back to a decision, I think probably at least most folks listening to this are probably aware of at this point, which is that you know, your first responsibility is to ensure that you even have the capability of responding to an emergency like this. Not that anyone necessarily knew up until, let's say, January or February um, exactly what we we're dealing with. But one responsibility you think would be a no-brainer for any president is to have the capacity to respond to public emergencies. And we know a couple of years ago that the Trump administration made a decision to get rid of a bunch of the folks who are responsible for planning for this specific kind of pandemic emergency. So not just not being prepared, but almost making a, a willful choice to not be prepared. So that's one. I think two clearly is the decision to not adopt the WHO standard for coronavirus testing, which, you know, we're still playing catch up from um, that decision and probably will be for the duration of this crisis. We just have, are not testing nearly enough people. We are testing way fewer people proportionally than at least certainly among the, the advanced developed economies, way fewer of our own um, folks have testing available. And then third, this, I mean, I almost feel like a dope saying this, um, 
it's a mistake to, I mean, this is everyone, this is cliche before it even comes out of my mouth, but making the decision to politicize it as overtly as he has. So it took him, I mean, these days all run together now that we're all kind of living under house arrest, right? But he spent a couple of days talking about wartime unity and, you know, this is a required big mobilization sort of play acting at being FDR or whatever. <laughs> And then a couple of days after that, he got bored and started picking a fight, unfortunately, successfully um, on partisan culture war sorts of lines by starting to going out of his way to call it the Wuhan virus or the China virus or or whatever to distract from how badly and how uniquely responsible he is for those bad decisions for the first two by um, baiting everyone into debating this not semantics. It's an important issue, but um getting sucked into an argument he's very comfortable having about sort of the culture symbolic sort of issue, as opposed to the ones that are, you know, are driving um, the actual spread of the pandemic. When you talk about that a little bit, Neil, uh, his propensity to call it the Chinese virus. Uh, I saw Pompeo, Mike Pompeo was having an uh, mm -hmm. argument with uh, European officials where he was insisting Pompeo, the secretary of state, Donald Trump's right. uh, secretary of state was insisting that the European officials adopt the name of the Wuhan virus. What do you mm -hmm. think he's getting at Donald Trump? I, and with the caveat, right, that I don't know if it's him or, you know, people on his, what is the train? Um, yes. people in his administration, like Stephen Miller or whoever, um, whoever's making the decision, I think it's very calculated decision that, um, it, cause we have this art. Sorry, let me, let me back up a second. I start to feel just like groundhog day, right? Because at some level, all of these episodes on the Trump administration are all uniquely horrible in their own specific ways. And of course we're living through the worst one yet, but they're all kind of the same, which is um, conservatives, Republicans, ducking the issue by picking a fight that's not about what we actually need to be focused about. So in this case, um, you know, what do we call the thing? Everyone else is calling it, you know, the virus is just the novel coronavirus and the and the syndrome or list of symptoms associated with being infected is COVID-19. Fine. We all know what we're talking about. We have a common, you know, point of reference. Okay, great. Sure. Let's move on. Start calling it the China virus, which they do very intentionally, I'm convinced, because they know it's, you know, a racializing the issue, but also racializing it in a way that is plausibly deniable. So, Yes, as far as we know, this virus did originate in a town in China called Wuhan. And yes, Wuhan is a town in China, so you could well also call it the China virus. That is, you know, on the thinnest possible level, it's true, that's where it's from, but we know that's not what it's all about. And yet they get to pretend, you know, we drive ourselves nuts, both just because of the, you know, the principle of the thing, also because the rest of us realize that putting it in racialized terms is putting a lot of people's um, physical safety at risk in this country. Um, we push back on that. They have this plausibly deniable BS kind of smirking, well, it's from China, we're just being factually accurate. And we go around and around and around and around and around. And the more time we spend on that, unfortunately, is time that we're not spending about other really important issues, which is 
where all these where are these tests going to come from? What is the plan here? Um, so it just it feels like a very intentional smokescreen. Uh, it is an intentional smokescreen. I, I agree with you. I I I think you're your analysis is correct. I spend more time thinking, what else are they getting away with when they do this? Uh, and uh, and then I, I think the distinct- Tens of millions of dollars of insider trading, for one. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. Richard Burr and Kelly Loeffler, uh, that's already kind of just fallen down the memory hole, and that was less than a week ago. Yeah. Uh, that was the senators who uh, got some briefings uh, as by virtue of their position in the U.S. Senate that this was going to be a serious uh, health crisis. And what did they do? They try, they began making stock maneuvers uh, that would uh, pro- work to their advantage before the rest of the public knew about it and the stock market reacted. Um, you talked yeah. about Donald Trump getting rid of the people in the White House and the administration who would be in charge of overseeing our efforts to uh, combat the pandemic. Uh, why do you think he did that. I mean, there wasn't even a, a, a threat at the time. So was it just general hatred for all things government, general hatred for science? Uh, I've read his explanation. Well, they, they weren't doing it. <laughs> they weren't doing anything. Um, that's like, well, getting rid of the fire department, Neil. You're, you're going to be on the board at DeKalb. Hey, there wasn't a fire this last month. Let's just get rid of the fire department. We don't need them. Uh, I mean, is it just idiocy on his part or is there some larger purpose that I'm missing? That's a head scratcher. Um, I don't know, but we're recording a podcast. so I'll just have an opinion anyway. Um, If I had to guess, it feels like something that's happened in a lot of other executive branch agencies, which is um, the White House. I mean, this happened. My recollection is that this started happening pretty soon after he was inaugurated. Um, went around asking for some sort of statement or demonstration of personal loyalty to Trump, and those people who balked got fired. Um, whether that was just because he's that insecure, which is, you know, that's totally on the table, right? Or because it gave him an excuse to um, um, replace, you know, experienced leadership with with political hacks. Um, which I think was also the case in, in some departments. Um, you're right that his stated explanation was just that, oh, well, you know, there's nothing going on right now and we can always hire these people back later if we need to, which is a not an uncommon, just sort of dumb business person kind of rationale. So I, at least to a certain extent, I'd almost be tempted to take that at face value. But again, it's, you know, obviously penny wise, pound foolish. I don't know what the budget for the White House is, but I have to assume that, the five or 10 or 20 or however many it was folks working on emergency preparedness related to pandemics. I mean, that's a drop in the bucket. It's not like that's, you know, and yet here we are. So, I mean, if, and that's I guess what, part of what I'm thinking about in the background here is how do we, how did we end up like, why is it our burden to face this emergency with the, just the most singularly dumb person to hold the office. Like, what did we do to deserve (laughs) this? I don't know. Uh, When you, when I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about uh, all these maneuvers that the white house has made, that Donald Trump has made that uh, has left us so exposed during this crisis. I think back Mm -hmm. to a couple of uh, crises uh, in my lifetime, one in your lifetime, uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination in 1963 and the 9-11 attacks 
of 2001, that was in your lifetime. In each instance, the Republicans and Democrats, after the fact, got together and convened panels that would investigate what happened and try to reach some kind of conclusions. And the notion was that there was a unified, bipartisan establishment that was going to look out for what was in the interests of the United States and could come up with a more or less objective study and analysis of what went down. We can mm-hmm. critique whether how objective it was or not, but there, that was the, the notion. I can't imagine, given the state of politics in the Trump uh, era, convening a panel that could do the kind of investigation that you're talking about. Because I remember when the 9-11 panel, one of the things they talked about was like the failures of our uh, our defense system, you know, that they they couldn't keep track of terrorists who were operating, operating in the United States. Just think about what you just outlined about what Trump did that led us vulnerable. How could Republicans confess to being complicit with that in this political nature. Yeah. Um, so a couple of minutes, I mean, 20 minutes before uh, we were getting this together, Ben, I got a call on my cell phone that said no caller ID. So of course, you know, in this age of telescams, I just let, sent it a voicemail. It turned out it was an automated message um, inviting me to a telephone town hall with Adam Kinzinger, um, my would have been opponent two years ago, who's still our Republican incumbent today. And so I didn't join because, well, but I was seeing updates on social media from folks locally, um, you know, on Facebook pages and the like who did join. And it was amazing that, you know, even at this late date, the message was apparently this is all kind of being overblown. Mind you, wow. In New York, they're already running short on morgue space and are converting refrigerators, refrigerated trucks to store bodies in advance of what they think is going to be a peak um, in fatality uh, next week or the week after. Somebody asked Kinzinger, well, how are we going to pay for this stimulus or this relief bill that just passed? Is the answer was that when this all dies down, we're going to have to think seriously about uh, entitlement reform. Um, wow. We've got a generation of Republican political leaders who, I, there's there's the real world and then there's whatever world they operate in. And um, it's very, something this is not enough to show responsibility, however deeply buried it is. It's been over the last three years. What would it take? If not now, when? And if not now, that probably means that, you know, I don't know whether it's an intelligence thing or whether it's a cultural thing or whether it's a whatever. Um, wh- where's the bottom? I don't know that there is one. And, you know, you can find plenty of people in the Republican Party who are even outwardly a lot more psychotic than Kinzinger is. And here he is still willing to go down with the ship. So um, it's hard to understand how well, I'm getting too dark now for my own taste. It, <laughs> it's hard to understand how elected government can continue to function in this country if one party is this committed to Trump's personal 
aggrandizement above literally anything else. I, I agree. I absolutely positively agree. And I think of Adam Kinzinger in the 16th congressional district. Uh, I would argue that he more than many Republicans is free. Uh, if you view, look, if you view political behavior by elected officials as structured and to preserve their incumbency so that there's limitations on the stands that they can take. So you can argue, well, just because he's an educated man, uh, with a reasonable consciousness, he should do the right thing and, and support efforts that promote science and understanding of how disease can kill people and how we should respond. But if you put that aside uh, and say, well, no, he's, his primary interest is making sure he gets reelected, I could argue he's already the candidate. He doesn't have to worry. He's already the Republican candidate for November's election. Mm -hmm. He does not have to worry about the radical right in the party there. They have no choice but to vote for him anyway or just not vote. So there's no reason sure. for him to move. He should be moving to the center just by virtue. And, and yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's all true. And the other thing, and I remember, um, God, this was like six weeks ago. This wasn't even that long ago. Um, during the um, impeachment proceedings, when Justin Amish, a libertarian Republican from Michigan, from Grand Rapids, he had already started calling himself independent a little before that. But um, in the run up to the impeachment vote in the House, he said that he believed Trump deserved to be impeached and was going to vote for it. And so he got all sorts of adulation, and all, I'm sure all sorts of fundraising support from Democrats nationally who were just, we're all starved on Slot, you and me and Dennis maybe, but uh, a lot of us are starved for that one good Republican who's going to stand up and, and do what's right. Um, and so folks, and I don't think Justin Amish at least has the, the, the conviction, uh, the, the courage of his conviction. So fair enough, but he, believes in all sorts of different, you know, things that are completely antithetical to democratic politics. And yet folks, you know, on the democratic side, very happy to welcome him into the fold. And so that, you know, that same angle is there for Kinzinger. It's there for a whole ton of other people and yet they don't do it. And the other thing I'll say about this, um, I mentioned my political science background earlier. So political science, you know, in academia, it's, it's very research heavy. It looks a lot like economics actually more than anything else. So we have these really complex models, depending on how you do political science, but folks come up with these really innate models to explain some sort of political behavior. And one assumption in the model, they all have kind of in common, I'm skipping a few steps, obviously, is this idea that we can explain political behavior, at least in a democracy, with the simple insight that people want to get reelected, right? Now, that's that's an assumption. We don't necessarily think that that's actually true. Clearly people care about all sorts of stuff. Um, but starting from a really simple premise lets you make all sorts of other common predictions on the line. And yet seemingly here we are where not only does Kinsinger and all those other um, folks, not only do they clearly want to win re-election, that seemingly actually is all they care about. Um, it, it really may be, and again, it just kind of calls the whole Democrat, small D Democratic project into question. Yeah, well, it's it's alarming. Again, I'll repeat what I said. Adam Kinzinger has nothing to worry about by drifting to the center on on the coronavirus issue. Oh my goodness, mm -hmm. there's nothing to. You have the right 
solidified. They can't yes. possibly defeat you. You can only win by a greater number. And yet right. it clings right. to it. It it defies the logic that you just articulated that political science uh, scholars have, you know, the theories that they've created to explain why politicians behave the way they do. I believe the Adam Kinzinger model blows it up. And you can't say he's doing out of right. good conscience. Right. What right. good conscience is served by denying that there's a dangerous coronavirus out there? So right. there's something right. very scary about uh, Republicans in the age of Trump. And that leads me to the next question. Now, Neil, I really do not know who you supported in the March 17th primary. You probably told me, and I forgot. Uh, be that as it may, the man who looks who be, who, like he will be the nominee of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, subscribes to a notion that you can have bipartisanship in this country. It's a notion that, is, that we right. just discussed is absolutely ludicrous in the era of Trump, as we just explained with Adam Kinzinger. So... Right. Please explain to me, use your political science background to explain to me, what is motivating Democrats to support somebody who is dedicated to a political philosophy that is non-existent? In other words, the notion that there could be a bipartisan working agreement between Republicans and Democrats. Right. So here, here's an analogy that I'll draw. It's just, I mean, kind of non sequitur, I guess, but it popped in my head. So folks who study um, the end of the Cold War and how did these communist societies, you know, maintain their legitimacy for so long, even though seemingly after the fact, very few people um, agree with them. And part of the answer, maybe even most of the answer, um, comes down to this idea that it's not just about whether or not you support the regime, but whether or not you think that other people support the regime. So it's this like second order consideration of, I know what I believe, but I don't entirely know what my neighbors believe. And so if I believe that they still want to support the Soviets or whoever, I will then go along with supporting the regime because what interest do I have for being the one poor bastard to stick his neck out and get it locked off? Um, and so what happened, at least in the case in Czechoslovakia in particular, um, there's a story, and I'm pushing the history, and one of my grad school friends can, can correct me on Facebook when this gets posted. But the, the gist is that folks started making these little um, symbolic gestures that the secret police might not notice. So hanging a certain poster or piece of artwork in your shop window to indicate that you, you know, supported the opposition. And as folks saw those tiny little signals, they would then go on to... And the reason I think about that is that I don't know that anyone individually actually believes that Biden is the best candidate or even the most electable candidate, but they believe that other people believe that he's the most electable or even the best on his own merits candidate. And so you have, I think, what I worry is happening here is that if he's the nominee, which I don't know is for certain the case for some reasons, which we'll get into in a second, but it's, it seems to me like potentially very brittle level of support where nobody's lining up because they feel you know, compelled or motivated or inspired 
or led, but rather, hey, we all want to win. We all want to get rid of Trump. I think as an individual voter um, that other folks are going to support Biden for those reasons. So I'll just go ahead and get in line with them. That's, it's, that's not an enduring source of support. And I think it's one that, you know, could still get ground down, especially in a general election. And to answer your question, I did, uh, I did vote for Uncle Bernie in the primary this time around, <laughs> just like I did four years ago. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And will be and will be to answer the next question from Facebook. Obviously, I will be voting for whomever the Democratic nominee is. But no, I think it's just driven by this notion of electability, which is a very backwards way to yeah. look at it. I think. Oh yeah, I agree, and I'm thinking about this. Uh, uh, I've been thinking about this more and more. What you said is so true. Uh, everybody is a pundit. Every voter is a pundit these days. And yeah. so they're making observation. Well, who's the most electable? And Bernie's not electable because they can call him a socialist. And so I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. And now you've elected a guy. You haven't even looked at who he is or how he talks or the bizarre way in which he seems to just uh, – not complete a sentence and you've signed on right. to him and now you're coming face to face with reality that the man you elected as the most electable is in fact the least electable. Right. Right. And I mean, we clearly, you're right about the pundit thing. I think especially democratic voters who are more engaged and more up on politics, the kind of folks who are um, disproportionately represented in the primary electorate. I think unfortunately we tend to think this way a little too much, um, thinking about the election sort of as a horse race as opposed to the election in terms of who do I want to win and what do I want to have happen the day after the election or the day after the inauguration, I should say. Um, and it's it's a really damaging way to look at things, not just because I think it's self-defeating, but also this is part of the reason, this has been documented by studies as well, um, why we still, even on the Democratic side of things, why we still have trouble nominating and electing women or people of color that folks, you know, will claim up and down. And who knows what the truth of this is in a particular case, right? Sometimes this is a little bit of a, the lady doth protest too much, but folks will swear up and down that they'll support a female candidate, but they're worried that other folks might not support a female candidate. Something I heard in my own race a couple of years ago was, oh, I'd support you, but I'm worried about other folks who might have a problem with your name and ethnicity. Um, and at some point that just becomes this really negative self-fulfilling feedback loop. We tell ourselves a story that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, then it comes true. And then we act like, you know, we knew better all along when in fact we didn't. Yeah. And my argument to be to people in the 16th congressional district is this before we get into the Joe Biden thing. If you are looking at a candidate to run against Adam Kinzinger in a district that's probably gone, I think Kinzinger probably won 60% of the vote, let's say last time. And you mm -hmm. like Why not sixty actually. What's that? Oh, it was right about sixty actually. All right. right. And and you like Neil a, a man named Neil Muhammad, who is the name Muhammad in his name. I would be like, don't worry about your neighbors not voting for Muhammad. He's probably gonna lose anyway. You should vote for who you want. Just think about it. Just think about it logically, if you can, Neil. Just the illogic embedded in the rational. Well, I can't vote for a guy named Muhammad because he probably couldn't beat Kinzinger. I got news for you. 
I'm not betting on any Democrat being Kinzinger. I'm going to Vegas right, and putting right. my money on Kinzinger if it's just a straight up bet. So vote for who you want. Sure. Vote for who you want to advance the ideas that you think could ultimately be winning ideas. Do you follow what I'm saying? And, but, yeah, no. It's it's. You know, I mean, I know you're a big basketball fan, Ben. I mean, so it's like, um, but why do you why do lower seeds of the NCAA tournament shoot a lot of three pointers? Well, they're probably not all going to go in. But maybe they will. And if they all win in, that's when you have an upset, right? You want yeah. It's this mean variance trade-off. You need to take a lot of chances and um, do a lot of unusual things and take a lot of risks and try to do things in a very counterintuitive way. Because strength for strength, when you're doing things traditionally, um, um, you're probably not going to come out on top. And that you was know, part of my pitch. Unfortunately, some folks didn't do <laughs> in that primary. But. Oh. It's uh, yeah. um, all right. Now, let's go back to something you said uh, about Joe Biden uh, being the nominee. And you said perhaps he, he may not be the nominee. Uh, a week ago, I would have said that's an absurd statement. But a lot has changed uh, in a week. Uh, I, when you say that, when, uh, when you look at the, the race as it is right now, Neil, what how do you when you say that Joe Biden may not be the nominee, what do you think will happen to keep him from being the nominee? Do you think it's Bernie Sanders will actually defeat him in this the uh, the last few primary states we have, or do you think there'll be an effort by the Democrats to replace him at the convention? I think it's more so the latter. Um, I think lots of things could happen in these primaries, I suppose, particularly if Sanders is still running, which it sounds like he probably will. Um, I need to speculate about that because I don't know, I don't pretend to know what the right decision is in terms of whether to hold these primaries. I thought it was potentially dangerous um, to hold the primary like we did in Illinois. Um, and I thought it was dangerous, in fact, for Biden's folks to be encouraging people to go out to polling places. That said, we don't know when this is going to be over. There may never be a time this year where it's particularly safe to have an election. And we do want to have elections. We can't, you know, so I, that's so that's a tough one. I can see both sides of it. Um, so you know, fair enough on that point. I I just worry about his personal health quite a bit. Um, I you know, interestingly enough, the last debate between Sanders and Biden, which was after the coronavirus had really you know started merging the U.S. and so they had an empty set and bumped elbows rather than shaking hands. I mean, that to my mind that was the first time that Biden had seemed lucid and together in months, if not since he actually entered the race formally toward the end of last year. Um, it was pretty shocking. Um, and I thought he actually trounced Sanders in that debate in part because, um, you know, if they were, if Sanders' folks were expecting Biden to collapse, clearly that's not what happened. I thought, Actually, Biden had the better of that for the most part. But then since then, um, he hasn't been a vocal media presence. I don't pretend to know how much of that is um, by choice versus how much of that is just, um, you know, our, the way our media is broken and, you know, gives Trump as much of a platform to spread propaganda as he wants while short-tripping other candidates. I think it could be part of it. Um, but it also seems to me that in the... Um, in the web conferences they've had to do from his home, he does not look well. And he doesn't look well in interviews. He doesn't sound well. 
He has the same challenge they did earlier this year with, you know, just hang on to with by the thought, finishing a conversation, transition between sentences. He'll just kind of trail off in the middle of a sentence and just, you know, sputter something and move on to the next. So um, I do worry about his health quite a bit and it wouldn't shock me at all if either, well, I don't know if he would draw technically before, well, not that there's going to be a convention in, in the traditional sense, but um, I, I could imagine at the convention, however that is executed, him declining the nomination or accepting it and then, but naming somebody else to run in this place. I, I think that's, I don't put a number on it. I think that's reasonably likely. Yeah, I listening to you, I, this notion popped into my mind. And this is all extremely speculative, uh, where party leaders come to him and say, for the good of the party, you know, don't do not mm -hmm. run. Uh, and, and if he has friends who are high-ranking Democratic uh, officials, and I presume he does have friends, uh, they would be looking out for his best interests. And I say this as a guy who, I'm just going to confess something here, Neil. I've always been a bit fascinated with Joe Biden as a character uh, since I mm -hmm. started following him. I've said this many times on this show. I follow Joe Biden, <laughs> believe it or not. Well, I'm a political junkie, Neil. That's, this is part of my confession to you. Uh, but I, but <laughs> I, I recall watching him in action as the, the chair of the Judiciary Committee at uh, several proceedings in the 80s. And I remember his run for presidency in 88. And when he got in trouble for uh, lifting, paraphrasing something, uh, lift, paraphrasing, stealing right. something from Neil Kinnock, the, uh, the labor politician in, or liberal politician, I can't remember which party, in England. And so, yeah. yeah, so I'm, um, I've always thought I'm an interesting character, fun to watch, very uh, predictable, mainstream dem. And uh, mm -hmm. this is not the Joe Biden that I know. Okay, I've watched him now for a long time, and to the point you're making, this is not uh, that Joe Biden. That guy, the Joe Biden that I uh, came of age watching, was very quick on his feet. Uh, could right. was a skillful debater. I think he got by mm -hmm. far the best of Sarah Palin in eighty. Uh, excuse me, in two thousand and eight, and a Paul Ryan, mm -hmm. who was Paul Ryan in particular. Yeah, 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 mopped the floor with Paul Ryan in two thousand and twelve. Mm -hmm. This is not the same Joe Biden. And I think right. his right. his friends have got to, who know him, I don't know the guy, I've never met him, have got to understand that. And I hope they communicate that to him. So, I worry sometimes because I know that I'm on too online. I spend too much time on Twitter. I, I, I worry that somehow this is like my being a Bernard brother just coloring my, my take <laughs> on the guy. But I don't think it is in this case. I don't think he's well, and it is... Well, I worry for him and his family, but also worry about where that leaves us in the election. All right. Now, uh, we'll close with this. We'll try to have a little optimism. When you take a look at uh, the officials, the various officials uh, who've been confronting this crisis, who do you think has really uh, stood out as being a particularly uh, skillful and adept uh, at this moment? Oh, I think, I mean, here in Illinois, I, I would start with J.B. Pritzker. Um, and I say that as, as long as we're rehashing old votes, not somebody who I supported two years ago, but I think he's done a fantastic job, both from the perspective of marshalling what resources the state has, being an advocate for the state. Um, I think his press conferences have all been exactly on point. Um, I think he's had the right message throughout. 
I think he's been as transparent as far as any of us could possibly know, um, as transparent as any elected official could be in this in this particular case. So I think um, he's done really well, and I, I think that stands apart from lots of other parts of the country where, you know, in Florida, um, their governor up until a couple of days ago, I mean, it's changed, was still refusing to take any sort of action um, in terms of enforcing social distancing or, um, you know, shelter in place or whatever. So I think that we're fortunate and we haven't, of course, always been able to say this in the state of Illinois, but we're fortunate to have had as good a state government or at least as good a, an executive um, in this particular time that we could ask for. Um, I'd be curious to know, I mean, I, I don't live in Chicago. I don't know a ton about Chicago politics. How, what's your, what's your rating of uh, Mayor Lightfoot's performance has been? Well, <laughs> it's, it's funny you should say that. This is one of my favorite themes. Um, I'm pretty bad at giving grades. I was always bad at getting grades, didn't get great grades. Uh, so I'm bad at giving grades. But a very mixed view of uh, Lori Lightfoot's handling of this situation. We talk about this a lot. Sometimes we make jokes about it because really it's sort of dark humor. There's a tremendous mm. amount of mixed messaging uh, coming out of, mm. the, well, not just Lori Lightfoot, J.B. Pritzker as well. I mean, all of our leaders. Uh, you already alluded to one huge mixed message, which is the election. And uh, Dennis right. and I joke about this all the time. Uh, they were saying, be worried, be afraid, come in, stay inside, don't go outside. And oh, by the way, hurry up and vote. It's your civic responsibility yeah, to vote. Fair. And uh, so mixed message there. There was a mixed message about not going to the parks. You, you should go out for walks. Oh, wait, don't go to the parks. Uh, and then getting mad and chiding the Chicagoans. And by the way, Chicagoans, I guess, deserted to be chided. Now... You know, one day later, they're closing the parks, uh, Neil, but mm -hmm. it's raining and cold and no one's going to go to the park anyway. So I, she's, she, I don't think she was ever uh, prepared for, obviously, for what she's facing. And um, uh, I've had many conversations with a Dr. Howard Ehrman on this show, who is a public health advocate. And he just talks about the years of cuts in public health programs in the city of Chicago. Uh, we saw that happen mm. with Mayor Rahm Emanuel with closing the mental health clinics. So the city of Chicago as right. a whole before Lori Lightfoot has had the attitude that Donald Trump has, which is, you know, I don't know what these people do. Uh, most people have health care through their insurance companies. Uh, why don't we just go to private companies? Uh, we don't need old school social workers anymore going door to door, making sure that everybody's healthy. And that's like from Jane Addams times. We don't need that anymore. So right, I think right. she's a combination of like 30 years of bad attitude when it comes to public health. That's what I think. Yeah. So anyway, all right, Neil Muhammad, we got to uh, end this conversation. And uh, I want to thank you very much for taking time. I want to congratulate you. Uh, well, I should hold back. You've only won round one, right? I don't want to. Just because no one has lost an election unopposed yet doesn't mean that it couldn't still happen. So, yeah, let's not count our chickens. All right. And uh, I promise to bring you back uh, sooner than the last time so we can have the continue the conversation, see where we're at in about two or three weeks with this crisis. Are you willing to come back on, Neil? Oh, no, of course. I love doing these. And um, yeah, sorry, obviously, under current circumstances, can't be in person. 
Yeah, too bad. And and one time we were talked to Neil said he was uh, I forgot until you said it. Uh, he was a contestant on Jeopardy, and we were going to have a. a um, uh, trivia contest. I was all prepared oh, to set it up. Oh, we keep talking about that. Yeah, right. we, and it, and and when I dropped the ball in that one, I have another friend who is also a contestant in Jeopardy, and I was hoping he would be in town, and then I could bring you two in the studio and <laughs> have the two of you go at it. it would have been great, and I would be coming up with the questions. Uh, but uh, we'll have to wait for this uh, catastrophe to pass, this crisis to pass, and then we can do that. All right. Absolutely, I look forward to it. All right, that's Neil Muhammad. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.